morning, Kevin. Um, we recognize that the reason we are sitting in this building today as Christian worshipers uh, is because of the events that took place in Genesis 15, at least in part, we can draw a line back from our faith all the way back to that moment when he made covenants with Abraham. I pray, Lord, that you would show us by your Holy Spirit your faithfulness and your graciousness and your goodness in this text that we can trust and take as real for our lives in 2018. Father, would you come and dwell richly with us now as we venture through this next part of Abraham's story. We pray your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning's focus is Genesis 15. I hope you have a Bible open. If I was to give a brief summary of Genesis 15, I'd say that really it's a chapter about God giving assurance in the midst of struggling faith. In this chapter, what we see is Abram struggling in faith. We see Abram voicing complaints to God. He's voicing complaints about the disconnect that he feels between what God had promised him and what had come to pass. And sweetly, super sweetly, in this chapter, we also see God going to significant lengths to assure Abram, to give Abram solid guarantees that indeed, what God had promised Abram, namely descendants and land, would surely come to pass. So if you're a person here this morning who is struggling with your faith in God, I am confident that there is something here for you as we traverse through this next section, this next chapter of the Word of God. The chapter opens with the words, after these things, after these things, the word of Yahweh, the Lord, came to Abram in a vision. And of course, the phrase there, after these things, points directly back to the things of chapter 14 that Jonathan led you through so ably last week. And I did get a chance, Jonathan, to listen to the sermon, so thank you for that. It was a tough text. But I think Jonathan did a fantastic job with the Lord's help. So after those things, in chapter 14, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Now notice something, just in passing, notice something very interesting here. Abram receives a vision. So a vision is something seen. A vision is a visual experience. But the content of Abram's visual experience is not something seen. Rather, it's something that, that is heard with the ears. The word of Yahweh. The, notice this. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It's an interesting dynamic there. The first thing out of Yahweh's mouth is, Fear not. We notice that the text does not have any editorial comment prior to God's fear not. So, for example, there is no comment here like, Abram was fearing such and such, which would then justify God's 
fear not on that. God just simply shows up in this vision and he says, fear not. So we have to wonder, what was there to fear for Abram? Well, perhaps any number of things. Maybe the most immediate thing that Abram was fearing is the prospect of King Kedor Laomer, who we met in Genesis 14, regrouping with his colleagues after Abram had soundly defeated him, perhaps coming back to attack Abram. Maybe, maybe that's what Abram was fearing. Or maybe Abram's fear here was simply born out of the fact that Yahweh had now shown up in a vision. Having the God of the universe suddenly present himself in your ears like this would no doubt be somewhat unsettling, a fearful thing. Maybe that's why God says to Abram, fear not, Abram. Maybe a third possibility, Abram's fear here was over the fact that time was ticking by and there had been no sign of God fulfilling his promises of descendants and land for Abram. Well, whatever the case, friends, do notice, do notice in the text, the sweet and powerful things that God says to Abram here. Notice this. This is your God. He says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. That is, I am your protector, your defender. And, God says to Abram, your reward shall be very Great. Now, Abram, toward the end of chapter 14, we remember, had rejected, he had rejected the material provision that the king of Sodom had wanted to give to him. Now, as chapter 15 opens, God is assuring Abram that God would see to it, God would see to it, that Abram's reward would be very great. God himself would be Abram's provider, both in terms of material goods and in terms of descendants. Now, what happens next in the story is very instructive for us. I want you to listen carefully. Take careful account of this, brothers and sisters in Christ. What happens next in the story is that Abram talks to God. For the very first time in the story of Abraham, Abraham talks to God. And the first thing out of Abraham's mouth is a complaint to God about God's slowness to fulfill God's promise. We need to take this in. Part of the teaching here is that to be a person of faith does not mean that complaints to God are off limits. Or better put, it's okay person of faith, to complain to God about God's ways. Are you with me? God is not shocked when you do that. He knows the inner depths of your heart anyway before you voice your complaint to him. Let's read verses 2 and 3 together. God has just sweetly given Abram the promises of protection and provision, but Abram said, O Adonai Yahweh, O Lord God, 
What will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer, or Eliezer, of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, or look, look, Lord, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Thank you very much. <laughs> now notice here that Abram's complaint to God centers around what? It centers around God's previous promise of offspring, of descendants, of people in Abram's lineage. God's people deal to Abraham had not come through. Time had been passing, and Abram still didn't have any biological babies to speak of. Now, part of verse 2 in the original Hebrew is notoriously difficult. It's actually pretty challenging to bring it over into English, but there is agreement amongst commentators that the general idea in these verses is simply this. Abram is saying to God, Lord, since you've not come through on your promise of offspring, I see little choice now but to adopt my household servant, Eliezer of Damascus, to take care of Sarai and I in our old age, and in return for Eliezer's services, Lord, I guess he will inherit my estate. Eliezer will be my heir. Friends, what we need to see here notice this very carefully, is that Abram is wrestling in faith. Abram is embroiled in a faith struggle. And the faith struggle is, God had given him the promise of offspring, and Abram had taken that promise seriously. Abram had taken that promise as precious. But there was this disjunct. Where in the world was the fulfillment of the promise? Abram was getting older. Couldn't wait forever. Abram is wrestling. And friends, listen. Wrestling in faith is 10,000 times better than losing faith. As Dale Ralph Davis has said, it is better to struggle over God's promises than to spit on them. It is better to debate with God over his promises. Some of you are debating with him over his promises right now in your life. It is better to debate with God over his, over his promises than to dismiss God's promises. Abram is debating with God here. He is wrestling with God because God's promises remain precious to Abram. My friends, faith has room within it to complain to God and to wrestle with God. Let's go to verses 4 and 5. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to Abram. How dare you complain to me, Abram? I am the sovereign Lord of the universe. And God gave Abram the silent treatment of Is that what your Bible says? That's not what mine says either. Thankfully, it's not what mine says. No, no, God, God in his 
amazing graciousness and his loving way and his understanding and his patience and his power and his wisdom and his benevolence. God is aware of Abram's limits. He's aware of our limits. He's aware of our frail frame. What the text actually says is, and behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This man, this Eliezer of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son, your biological son, who is still to come onto the scene, he shall be your heir. And Yahweh, notice, Yahweh brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring Now, one of the things I miss about life in Alberta is our regular trips up to Calling Lake, where my family had a cabin for many, many years, and still does. Calling Lake is two hours north of Edmonton, so it's pretty far north. There are no city lights there to speak of. And we would sit around the campfire that night, and on clear nights, the stars were just astonishing. Sometimes Psalm 147.4 would come to my mind. God determined the number of all those stars, and God names the stars, all of them. Back in Genesis 13, verse 16, God had promised Abram offspring, descendants, who were going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth. Now at 15.5, God changes the analogy to stars. Abram's offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the night sky. God is just so amazing here. I want to borrow the illustration of Dale Ralph Davis and personalize it just a little bit to, to help us get what God is doing here. So at home I have a cookbook, and that's all pasta dishes. So it's thick. So page after page of spaghetti and fettuccine and penne and sanicotti, etc., etc. The thing is, there are no pictures of the dishes. Anywhere in that book, you, you can't tell what the completed recipes look like unless you go ahead and make them yourself. All you can do is read the recipe in front of you and sort of surmise, take your best guess whether it's going to taste good and what it might look like. I much prefer cookbooks that have pictures. <laughs> Color pictures. Prefer where you can see what the dish is going to look like in all its glory once it's done. I think it's just more inspiring to me when I cook. What God is doing for Abram in Genesis, Genesis 15.5 is he's giving Abram the colored picture cookbook. He's not just simply saying the words to Abram about the promise of offspring or simply giving Abram some text with some printed words that confirm the promise. Instead, God is giving Abram a visual aid in full color, the stars in the sky. Why? He's doing this in order to kindle Abram's faith, to enliven Abram's imagination, 
Just as God gives us visual aids, doesn't he, at the Lord's table, that kindle our faith and enliven our imagination, the cup and the bread. Well, the general point of these first five verses that we would do very well to lay hold of is that it is God's way, listen, it is God's way to meet our struggling faith with assurance. Again, that's a quote from Dale Ralph Davis, who I'm borrowing pretty heavily from this week because he's written great stuff on this chapter. God responds to the struggling faith of Abram with the full-color assurance of the stars in the sky. Abram's offspring will indeed be as numerous as those stars. Now, we have to be careful as we go to verse 6. Verse 6 is now the comment of the narrator of Genesis. Verse 6 is an editorial comment of sorts given to us by the narrator of Genesis. The verse reads, And he believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. We have to be careful with this verse. The verse is not to be taken as meaning that now, at this point, right after God's comment about the stars, that now Abram came to faith in God for the first time. No. Rather, verse 6 is an editorial comment about the ongoing faith of Abram. It's a comment about how Abram, despite his wrestling, in verses 2 and 3, remain firm in faith in Yahweh. Faith can wrestle, and faith can remain firm. Because after all, Hebrews 11.8 tells us that Abram had left his homeland in faith, so that Abram's faith had already been offered way back when he had left Ur at the beginning of Genesis 12. So Genesis 15.6 is certainly not to be taken as the initiation of Abram's faith. It is rather a report that, as Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam put it, and I like this, they say, Abram remains strapped into the roller coaster and is hanging on to his ride of faith, despite the wrestling and the complaint that he's just voiced to God in verses 2 and 3, and despite Abram's non-highlight real moments. You see Connor and David's goals last night? I think it's great beauty. Abram's non-highlight real moment in chapter 13, where he's gone down to Egypt. I know it's always going to be a quiet crowd when I mention the Oilers. <laughs> Abram remained in his faith in Yahweh, despite all of the shakiness in Abram. Verse 6 says, listen to what verse 6 says, Abram, what? Believe the Lord. To believe the Lord means to place one's trust in the Lord. To rely on the Lord. To remain firm in the Lord. And friends, do pause over this verse with me and note very well, what is the object of Abram's belief and faith? He believed what? The Lord, the Lord, God himself, Abram believed the Lord, the living God, we need to understand this, the living God 
was the focus and the center and the direction and the preoccupation of Abram's faith. The living one who had spoken the promises was the obsession of Abram's faith. See, some of us are focused way too much on our faith itself. On the level of our faith. On the health of our faith. On the amount of our faith. We ask ourselves questions like, can I trust my faith? Do I have enough faith? Instead of turning the focus of our heart, mind, and soul and strength on God himself, who says, don't be anxious about the level of your faith. Just keep your eyes on me, you weakling. God takes so much pleasure when our focus is Him, however weak we feel. When we believe Him and trust Him and look to Him and trust His Word, God likes that. And that's where our benefit is found. Watch what happens here. Abram believed, we're still in verse 6, Abram believed Yahweh, the Lord, and he, that is Yahweh, counted Abram's, Abram's belief in Yahweh, or Yahweh reckoned Abram's belief in Yahweh, or Yahweh credited Abram's belief in Yahweh. In total grace, Yahweh counted or reckoned or credited Abram's ebbing, yet persevering faith in Yahweh as righteousness. Imperfect Abram, with his apparent flaws, his complaining, his weakening, yet persevering faith, he gets strong grace from our God. Abram is declared righteous by his gracious God. What grace we see in God here. Let's go forward to verse 7. Verses 1 through 5 had been about Abram wrestling with the people promise, the promise of descendants. Now, beginning at verse 7, the focus switches, doesn't it? It, focused, it, it switches from the people promise to the land promise now. Verse 7, God says to Abram, I am Yahweh who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess. Verse 8, Abram continues to struggle in faith. Abram says, O Adonai Yahweh, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Again, friends, we need to notice here the spaciousness within faith to voice complaints, to voice lack of assurance to God. After God reiterated the land promise there in verse 7, Abram could very well have said, Ah, the land promise again. Sorry, Lord, that I'm done. You haven't come through on the land promise, so this is where I get off the train. I'm done. Goodbye. But according, again, according to verse 6, Abram was continuing in faith. He was not ready to walk away, even though he is indeed wrestling and he is struggling in faith. 
O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? See Abram wrestling here, but not walking away from God or spurning God. Verse 8 is an indication that the promise of land still mattered to Abram. The promise remained precious to him. He still had faith. All Abram wanted now was an assurance. All Abram was longing for here was some sort of guarantee that the land promise would come to fruition because, let's face it, the Canaanites were still sitting on the land. They were yet in the land, in possession of it, and, and that fact just didn't seem to be changing. How am I to know that I shall possess the land? And then we come to a very important set of verses beginning at verse 9 and going down through the end of the chapter. Focus your eyes on these verses with me. God says to Abram, now this is weird. Abram, how am I to know, I know that I shall possess the land? God, bring me a heifer. Okay. Bring me a heifer, three years old, and a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So get this. Abram asks, uh, Lord, how am I going to know that I possess the land? And God's answer is this bizarre request for a parade of animals. And we wonder what's going on here. Verse 10. Abram brought all these to Yahweh, and Abram cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. This is interesting. God had not asked Abraham to cut the animals up, to lay them out like this, but Abram does it anyway. Probably this is a commonly understood convention of the time. Abram just knew what to do with the animals that God had requested without God having to tell him what to do. Verse 11. Now friends, sometimes when you're engaged in carrying out the call of God, you have to fend off distractions. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. According to Leviticus chapter 11, birds of prey were unclean animals. And here they are swooping down and pecking at the sacrifice of God which is the carcasses of the animal. So this is an ominous sort of picture here in verse 11. Unclean birds attacking a God-ordained sacrifice. Some think that the birds of prey in this verse act as a sort of prophecy of Egypt. Egypt will end up enslaving and oppressing and pecking at Israel. And Israel, so goes the argument, Israel is represented here by the animal carcasses sacrifice of God. Be that as it may, the picture gets even more ominous and dark. In verse 12 of Paul, as the sun was going down, now back in verse 5, God had instructed Abram to look at the stars in the sky, right? It had been nighttime, verse 5. But now in verse 12, the sun is just going down. So clearly here in verse 12, we're already into our second day of Abram's encounter with Yahweh. As the sun was going down, a tardemoth in Hebrew, 
A deep sleep fell on Abram. Tardamah, it's a fairly rare word in the Old Testament. This is the same quality of sleep that had once fallen on Adam in Genesis 2.21, when God had removed Adam's rib. Now this same quality of sleep falls on Abram, a Tardamah. As Bruce Waltke says, this specific sort of sleep is divinely induced. I would love to divinely induce. <laughs> the sleep is divinely induced, and it is, he says, abnormally heavy. And it's a sleep in Scripture that's connected with divine revelation. The end of verse 12 says, just gets more ominous, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon Abraham. There's an ominousness about this. Something foreboding is in the offing. Something foreboding is about to be revealed. Verse 13. Then Yahweh said to Abram, as Abram is in his divinely induced sleep, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, what biblical event is God prophesying here? The Exodus. God is telling Abram, get this, that Abram's offspring, that Abram's concerned about, his offspring that are all yet to come, will end up migrating away from the promised land. They will go to another land, to a foreign land, there to serve the occupants of that foreign land and be afflicted by those four foreign occupants for how long? For four centuries. This is a description, a clear description of what will come at the end of the book of Genesis when Jacob takes his family out of the promised land of Egypt and then into the first half of the book of Exodus, life under Pharaoh, life under Egypt, the Exodus year. God continues in verses 14 through 16. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Plagues. And afterward they shall come up with great possessions. As for you, Abel, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here promised land, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So watch this, friends. God's, you need to understand this, God's answer to Abram's question about possessing the land that Abram has just asked in verse 8, God's answer is to say here to Abram, Abram, it's going to be a long time. Several centuries, in fact, until your descendants possess the land. And Abram, it's going to be a hard time also, leading up to the time when your descendants possess the land. And Abram, your offspring, whom you've not yet seen, will indeed possess the land, but you're not going to live to see it, Abram. 
I will be faithful to my promise of the land, but I have no panic to make it happen in the immediate. And before your offspring possess the land, they will have to suffer. Now watch this, friends. The thing about our God is that he's not like the people who write up my cell phone bill. My cell phone bill is full of fine print that no normal human being will ever understand. And I think they do that on purpose to get away with charges that are probably pretty sketchy to be charging customers in the first place. But no one understands the fine print, and they want to keep it that way to keep charging the charges. That's my theory. Well, God here in verses 13 through 16 is not like that. He is 100% totally, completely up front with Abram concerning the future. There is no fine print or nebulous sort of statements or sneaky stuff. God just lays it all out. He lays all the time that it's going to take to gain the land. He lays that out. He lays out the suffering that Abram's offspring will have to encounter in acquiring the land. And I love what Dale Ralph Davis says here. He says, all the obstacles and difficulties and discouragements are right out in the open. And what on earth does that have to do with, ass with assurance? Simply that you can trust the God like that. You can lean on a savior like that. He doesn't hide the nasty stuff in fine print in an endnote. Yes. Just like Jesus doesn't hide the fine print from us who are his disciples. Later this afternoon, if you have time, read John chapter 15, verses 18 and following. Jesus lays out for us the trouble we will encounter as his disciples. Of course, there's more we can say about verses 13 through 16, but for the sake of time, I want us to move now to the last five verses of our chapter. So let's read verses 17 through 21. When the sun had gone down, and it was dark, so again, sort of foreboding, Thomas, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. I was worried about reading those verses all night last Look at verse 17. What we have in verse 17 is something called a theophany. A theophany is a visible manifestation of God. And here, God is represented by the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch. The smoking fire pot and flaming torch in verse 17 are symbols of God's presence. In the book of Exodus, God manifests himself with smoke and fire also. At the burning bush, and at Mount Sinai, 
and also in the pillar of fire by night that leads the people through the wilderness. Watch what happens here. God, your God, represented in the fire pot and torch, passes between the pieces of the animals that Abram had cut off. God walks barefoot, so to speak, through the blood that's on the ground that has pooled in between the severed halves of the animals. God traverses through gory, split animal carcasses. And again we ask, what in the world is going on Well, there is enough evidence, both judging by a crucial passage that we have in Jeremiah 34, and also reading a variety of other ancient Near Eastern records, that what God is doing here, as he walks between the pieces of the animals, is he's saying, not verbally saying, but saying symbolically the following. God is saying, may I become like these dead animals if I do not keep my promises. May what happened to these dead, severed, bloody animals happen to me, God is saying, if I renege on my end of the covenant that I am now making. God is saying, I would rather destroy myself than be unfaithful to my people by not keeping my promises. As Ray Vanderlaan has put it, as God passes between these pieces, God is saying to Abram, I love you so much, Abram. And I promise that this covenant will come true for you and your children. I will never break my covenant with you. I'm willing to put my own life on the line to make you understand. Friends, how seriously does God commit to his promises? He is willing to be torn apart if he can be found unfaithful in the keeping of his promises. How is this for an assurance to Abram in his shaky faith? And how is this for an assurance to us in our shaky faith? How is this for a statement in living, gory color of the steadfastness and the commitment to faithfulness of our God. Now in verse 18, we have the statement, and notice this, on that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram. Quite literally, as we read the Hebrew here, the statement reads, on that day, Yahweh cut a covenant with Abram. The animals are cut in half. Yahweh walks between the cut pieces, and therein the covenant is cut. What is a covenant? As O. Palmer Robertson defines it, and I like this because it's quite memorable, Robertson says a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. It's a great little definition. A bond in blood 
sovereignly administered. A covenant, says Dale Ralph Davis, is what God does when he gets formal about a promise. A covenant, says Charles Scobie, is an agreement between two parties that establishes a special relationship between them with mutual, but not necessarily equal, obligations, sealed by a special ceremony. I think these are all helpful definitions of covenant as it's understood in the Bible. Covenant is so important in the Bible. There's a theologian named Rolf Rendorf who's argued that covenant is the most comprehensive and the most theologically weighty term for God's attention to humans in the Hebrew Bible or in the Old Testament. Covenant, so important. Now what's really apparent in Genesis 15, as we work this toward close now, what's really apparent in Genesis 15 is that this covenant that God cuts with Abram is totally one-sided. That is, Abram hasn't said a word since verse 8. In fact, Abram fell into the deep sleep, didn't he, in verse 12. After he did the hard work of cutting the animals in half and providing the birds away, he fell into the sleep. God has done all the talking here. God is the only one making promises here. God is the only one who walked between the pieces of the animals here. God is the only one who called down an oath on himself about keeping his promises. So this is truly a unilateral covenant, one-sided. God doesn't ask Abram to do much of anything here. I believe that God being God, he knew all about the future in this moment. God knew, listen, God knew that Abram, that Abram's offspring, which includes you and I, according to Galatians, Abram and Abram's offspring, God knew, would not end up keeping their end of this covenant or any of the future covenants. You and I would not keep the covenant law that came later through Moses. We would not even perfectly obey the Ten Commandments. Here in Genesis 15, God does not invite Abram to walk through the pieces of the animals like God does. Because to do that is to say, may what happened to these animals happen to me, should I break the covenant. And God knew that Abram and his offspring would be covenant breakers. God walks alone through the animal pieces. I think that right here in Genesis 15, as God traipses through blood, God is committing to both sides of the covenant. His side and our side. As Ray Vanderlaan puts it, he puts it this way. He says, when God made covenant with Abraham, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. If this covenant is broken, Abraham, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or yours, I will pay the price, said God. If you or your descendants, for whom you are making this covenant, fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And at that moment, says Vanderlaan, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son, Jesus. Yes. In the person of Jesus Christ, 
in the one who entered Jerusalem on the back of the donkey on Palm Sunday, with the goal of dying on a cross, God has taken on himself our curse for our covenant breaking. For his part, God has remained exactly 100% totally faithful to his side of the covenant, but we have not. I need to hear an amen. amen. We have not. And so in his son Jesus, God has suffered the death sentence for our covenant ring. <laughs> May what happened to these animals happen to me if I break covenant, and it happens to because I have broken covenant, but it happens to my substitute, Jesus Christ, whose blood is shed and his body broken for me on the cross. Jesus became a curse for us, says Galatians 3.13. And we, when we put our trust in the crucified and risen and soon coming Jesus, we receive and experience not the Curses of the covenant, but the blessings of the new covenant. This is the gospel. This is the undeserved grace that God gives us. I hope this morning, as we've traveled through the territory of Genesis 15, that God has given you a fresh vision of his patience, of his goodness, his grace, and his love, and his coolness. God is cool, isn't he? Abraham complains God says, okay, check out the star. Abraham complains and God says, bring me a bunch of animals. God is cool. God is cool. So I hope you get the coolest of God's in this passage. So in Genesis 15, what, what happens here? There's a person struggling in faith. Struggling in faith. Some of you are struggling in faith. And that person is met by a God who goes to great lengths to give assurance. In Genesis 15, a person wrestling with God's apparent slowness is met by that God who cuts a covenant to ensure the truth and the veracity of his promises. In Genesis 15, God commits to a bond in blood, sovereignly administered covenant that ultimately finds fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who dies and pays the penalty for your covenant breaking. Amazing God. Amazing grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you for this most important part of your revelation, Genesis 15. It's not just words on a page, Lord, but it affects us, our hearts, our minds, our entire being, because in it we see Jesus Christ. The covenant, the new covenant that he has brought, the new covenant that is in his blood. We praise you because you have rescued us from ourselves, from our sin, and from the devil. And we pray now, Lord, as we go to the table, that this celebration of your goodness and your covenant would just simply continue and that we would be blessed and ministered to you. In Jesus' name.